it all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we have no exception, of course. We're t- going to be talking some about um, Bart Ehrman's book, The Triumph of Christianity. And, you know, when this book came out, I was really looking forward to it. Because this is a topic of great interest to me, and I was thinking, I'm kind of curious to see what Bart Ehrman's going to say about this from a more secular perspective. Turns out I was a bit disappointed by it. And my ministry partner has been writing a review of it, and it's an area of special interest for him. He has an argument for resurrection based on that. And I'm talking with him today. His name is J.P. Holding. He runs Tectonics. And he has a master's degree in library science and is a contributing writer of a Christian research journal. He has also written for publications of Creation Ministries International. So, um, JP, welcome to, back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, Nick. Glad to be back again. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, well you know, I've been at this since, what, the mid-90s and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I started battling with some people on a place called America Online, I suppose you might remember that place, right? I think I heard about it in ancient history when I was in school. I think so, too. I thought it was inscribed in a rock somewhere. <laughs> well, so I got started debating some people on there. And uh, at the time, I was already a librarian and already into research. And I saw in all the debates going on a place that I could do something. I joined up with another ministry, which at the time was called the Christian Apologetics Bookshelf. Mm-hmm. He turned he turned it over to me in about two and just like a couple of years before two thousand, and uh, started to my own website, Tecton Apologetics Ministries. That's T E K T O N I C S dot O R G. And since then, been just 
using that to write nearly 2,000 articles and open up a lot of other places where I've been doing stuff too. And mm -hmm. most recently, that includes the YouTube channel Tecton TV. Mm -hmm. so, got, a, got a small media empire going all at one time, I suppose you could say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, were you looking forward to Barderman's book? Um, in the sense that you you look forward to clipping your toenails, maybe. I mean, let's face it. Uh, I'm you know, Bart Ehrman is an excellent writer. I, he knows how to you know state his premises clearly. He knows how to you know, say things in ways that people can understand. And I will t absolutely take nothing away from him on that. But um, I think when he gets out of his uh, assigned field of textual criticism, I think he tends to overst overstep his bounds and say some things that are not as reasonable or not as academically inclined as they could be for someone in his position. Okay. Yeah, um, folks watching here on the live stream and such, I, I do realize for some reason you all can't hear JP. I don't know why that is. I'll see if I can find out later what's going on. I'm trying to fiddle around, get things done here, but uh, I'm sorry for any of the trouble here and such. But I gotta get back to asking JP about it. So, um, going through Ehrman's book, I mean, what, what are the things that stuck out to you the most? Well, what stuck me, what stuck out to me the most is the way he generally avoids the question that he's supposed to be addressing. And when this book was first announced some years ago, it, I had already uh, put together my impossible faith argument, and, um, you know, and I knew that you know, I saw some previews of Ehrman's book that led me to believe he might have something to say about that. I mean, I certainly had reason to believe that he was aware of my my theories on that subject um, because he had seen Richard Carrier's reply to it. So he certainly knew that it was out there. Um, so I was hoping to see something in there uh, related to you know addressing the things I said, even if not mentioning me by name. I wouldn't expect that, but at least come up with something more detailed. And then the book was his book was delayed for a while for a reason I don't know, but it came out a few months later than it was advertised to come out. And I found in it basically nothing that addressed any sort of arguments that I said, uh, nothing that really came down to explaining why he believes Christianity uh, was triumphed the way it did. In fact, if you had to uh, put it in any particular way. Um, I would say that his his explanation for why Christianity triumphed was people were told about it and believed it, which is not really an answer. Mm -hmm. It's it's not really an explanation for why Christianity triumphed. It's just an explanation of the process by which Christianity triumphed. Mm -hmm. I uh, found when I was going through there that what was disappointing me was that he really said nothing about honor and shame in there, other than quotations. It's like he doesn't know anything about what's going on with that word. Uh, that's, that is correct. I mean, I was looking for that all throughout. And when we get to the second half of the show here, talking about my own thesis in this regard, uh, we are going to talk more about why we think honor and shame is so important. 
uh, I think this would be a good example of what I was saying of where he is speaking outside his field and talking about things that he hasn't researched thoroughly. Uh, you cannot really understand the world of the Bible thoroughly without an understanding of the way their society worked. And as we'll talk about later, uh, the principles of honor and shame were very important to that world. It was central to their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although you can appreciate the Bible without understanding that, you'll appreciate it far more once you do understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your criticisms you've got of Ehrman's thesis of Vazaho? Like, what your concerns about the Gospels and such that he presents? Okay. Most of this, his work in the Gospels has been done in prior books. Uh, we've, you know, there's multiple books that he's published on both a popular and an academic level. And in, in many cases, there's nothing there that's not simply what's been standard for many years, the standard view that Matthew didn't write Matthew, John didn't write John, uh, standard view that the, you know, the Gospels were in some, or the rest of the New Testament as well, were corrupted so much that we can't be sure that what they originally said is reflected in what we have now. To that extent, I don't have any unique criticism of Ehrman that hasn't been seen before or directed at other people over the past decade or more that I've been around doing this kind of work. Um, I don't think he's really come up with anything that radical uh, in his theories. I think he's just repackaged it in a more popular way. Um so, so to that extent, uh, I don't have anything new to say about anything Ehrman said. I'm just saying, well, here we go again. Here's here's some of the same ideas, and he's just packaged them in a way that's easier for people to understand. What do you think about what he said about Constantine? That he has at least conceived that Constantine is not responsible for the spread of Christianity. Yeah. Now, on that point, you know, I wrote um, a four-part review of this of Triumph of Christianity for the Cadre blog, and the first major part of that book, a significant part of it, is devoted to this principle that Constantine was not the reason Christianity survived. And although you know, it, he's, he doesn't say Constantine hurted any, he at least does not go so into this whole conspiracy idea that Constantine was behind the success of Christianity. Now, we should stress that the whole idea that Constantine was the game maker for Christianity is one that is spread around by a lot of conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. by a lot of poor historians, the same kind of people who say the Council of Nicaea invented the Trinity and so on. Um, there are you know, more realistic views available on that, um, and it, it, it proposes that at most Constantine was an indirect influence that helped Christianity survive and grow. Um, perhaps the best thesis I saw was by a gentleman named Dungan, a scholar named Dungan, who said that because Christ, because Constantine ordered copies made of the New Testament in his time period. Uh, he indirectly thereby made it so that there was only one official version of the New Testament. Once he ordered the New Testament to be uh, made a certain way, it would be kind of hard for anyone to say, well, this book should be added now or this book should be taken away now. That pretty much set the New Testament in stone. But this was not any sort of active uh, thing that he was up to. He wasn't actually trying to fix Christianity or fix the Canaan a certain way. Uh, 
Constantine wanted just wanted peace. He wanted people to settle their differences and get Christianity going so he could attend to his business. And that's the only reason and only process whereby you could say that Constantine was the reason Christianity succeeded any further. He was not the originator of the faith as we now know it. And to that extent, Ehrman certainly was correct in his assessments. Mm-hmm. I also found it very odd that Ehrman talked about miracles as a way that Christianity spread. Like, yeah, but, but you know, I'm, I'm not saying any miracles happen. I'm saying that people believe that miracles happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, when he, his addressing of that subject was, you know, he, he attributed, he said miracles were one of the basis for success, but at the same time, he didn't really uh, give his audience anything that would, they would approve of because he didn't go into any explanation for why these miracles occurred. I mean, he just basically said, well, we know people believed that miracles occurred. But he didn't say anything about you know why or or how or whether he certainly as an atheist are not going to say that they actually occurred. Uh, that's the best example is on page fifty two here. I note is that he says Paul honestly believed that he had seen the risen Jesus. Now while that dispenses with some of these uh, theories that you know, Paul was a liar or you know, Paul you know, was was some kind of cons- you know, part of some conspiracy to make Christianity work. It also sort of it also uh, causes Ehrman to be committed to the principle that uh, the early Christians, if nothing else, were honest about their belief. And from there, he goes mm-hmm. to this view that you know, Paul was so convicted and so strongly believed in what he did that he was very, able to become very convincing when he was able to convert people. And I don't. I'd say that's a pretty naive view. Um, it, it's, it's. It's. There's this idea today, especially that someone's conviction or principles are sufficient to cause other people to change their minds, and that might be the case sometimes. But it's also the case because. Um, you know, there's nothing against believing certain things, which is one of the principles of my impossible faith thesis. That there are so many negative things about Christianity that made it difficult to believe that merely because of someone like Paul being so convinced of its truth, that's not going to be sufficient to convince others of its truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you also think you got towards the last chapter? I mean, I know this is outside your area, but he does seem to go into more political things. And I think he even said for instance that intolerance was disagreeing with someone on a subject. And I was very bad thought, did I read that right? Did he really say that? Uh, I hope he didn't. Uh, I, I might have sort of I might have uh, zoned out when I started reading that stuff. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing is that kind of thing is not particularly uh, the thing, sort of thing I look into, but it is clear that he, in his work, that he's trying to not disturb anyone's harmony. I mean, we we know you and I know of many aggressive atheists who are out to call people to deconvert. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Ehrman doesn't seem to be that type. I mean, he seems to be very gentle and, and you know, and very concerned about other people, and he doesn't want to disturb their harmony. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it goes quite far, a little too far, to say something like that, that intolerance is equal to disagreement. Uh, if you want to say that, then I, we can point to any number of places where Ehrman himself was intolerant, simply mm-hmm. because he disagreed. I don't think anyone wants to go that far if that's what he's saying. Well, I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Now, okay. you've, yeah. You've, yeah. You've said also that Ehrman seems to have this disconnection that if the gospel show works of being literary, skilled, and tuned and such, that they therefore cannot be historical. Okay, yeah, that's a very good point. And again, that's not... That is not something that is unique to Ehrman. That sort of idea has been around for a long time. Uh, many of those so-called higher critics, uh, people like Rudolf Boltman, uh, this whole idea that if you can detect some sort of pattern or some sort of um, uh, some sort of emphasis in the Gospels that seems to be a pattern, then you have reason to question that the presentation in the Gospels is historical. Um, that. The real reason we see certain patterns of storytelling in the Gospels is because that's the way they created their literature. They made it that way on purpose to make it more memorable. We're dealing with a world where literacy was 10% or lower. And in order to make sure that people were able to remember what they heard when the Gospels were read to them, the best way to do that was to make the Gospels structured in some way, to make to make some sort of pattern that made them easy to remember. And that's the real reason for most of the things that Ehrman takes as evidence for fabrication. Um, and we know of other theorists of the same type. Uh, we've, you know, it's a, theorists who say that kind of thing are a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's something we could also do if you know, some people would say about that, that, you know, and this is when I even be like Matthew Ferguson, or something you say that if mm. something really important happened, don't you think you would write it down immediately? Uh, my favorite counter example of that is um, it's kind of relevant right now with the eruption of the volcano in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, just parallel is the eruption of Vesuvius, uh, which took place in the 70s AD, about the same time as you know, Jesus was around, just about 30 or 40 years afterwards. And that was a very important event. It killed millions of people. It buried two, two major small cities. It was visible from a major city. Uh, and um, you know, surely that was so important that you'd expect a lot of people to be writing about it at the time. But the sad fact is that even though there were plenty of literate people nearby who could have written about it, the only writing we actually have about it comes from the pen of uh, Pliny, uh, the younger. And that only occurred because his uncle, Pliny the Elder, was killed in the explosion. If Pliny the Elder had been on vacation when Vesuvius blew up, we might not have had any accounts of it from that period. Of course, mm-hmm. we have many hundreds of years later, but that's that misses the point that we're striving for here, and which the atheist is trying to make um, so much emphasis on, that if something was this important, surely somebody would have written it down. Well, there are repeated examples where that simply is not the case. Uh, and there are any number of reasons we could discuss for that. Uh, never mind the fact that 90% of the people were literate. Never mind that you know, the average pack of paper in that time would have cost like a, a year's salary for most people. 
And never mind that you know, there was just no such thing as mass publishing. <laughs> we can't, mm-hmm. we, you know, and then we get into the problem of things surviving to this day. Yeah, you know, to go back to what she said earlier, also about way things were written. I think very few of us would have read any much from the ancient world if it was written, like say, the textbooks that we used when we were in school to learn about history. Mm-hmm. And such. I know Mike's told me that only one writer really wrote in that style back then, and his writings were not the most popular. Most everyone did have sort of literary finesse to what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. You had to make it interesting. You had to make it attention getting. You had to make it, more importantly, memorable. And uh, you know, we're all familiar with you know the techniques for you know perver- preserving memory. A repetition is part of that process. Uh, poetry is part of that process. There are a number of ways you can you know make things memorable. Uh, but anyone in that time who did not write in that fashion, their work's not going to be preserved. And it was simply for practical reasons. Uh, you had to make sure that your work was memorable. Um, now, so, so Mike has talked about that a bit. Is it, what was the name of the author he mentioned? I haven't heard this before. I honestly don't remember. It's not, it's okay. with an A. That's, That's fine. That was just a moment right of interest I had. Um, yeah. mm. So, so in, you know, in, ter- in terms of you know, Ehrman's current thesis, yeah, um, he doesn't really you know, uh, seriously address the question of why people even bothered to transmit the Christian message aside from they believed it was true. But the question we're trying to find out is why did they believe it was true? <laughs> and he never really gets to that point. And I'd really like to make a point here about something he, that he, well, not he said, but that Robert Price said when he invited Ehrman onto his show. You know, Robert Price mentioned my impossible thesis, uh, faith thesis to Ehrman, and Price described me as saying, uh, this is not a exact quote, but this is what he said, that I believe that Christianity was unbelievable and would not have possibly succeeded unless the Holy Spirit was inspiring people to believe it. That is a totally incorrect representation of what I said and what I have argued. Okay. I have made no statement whatsoever about the Holy Spirit's role in people believing. Maybe there was a role, maybe there wasn't, but that's not what I argued. I argued instead that in order for people to believe Christianity, they had to come to believe that there was solid historical and real evidence for Jesus Christ having risen from the dead. That is what I argue. And that is something Ehrman not once addresses anywhere. He is he's simply content to say that well, we know people believed it happened, period. Mm-hmm. Well, um, JP, uh, I think we could go ahead and move on some to your counter thesis at this point here, your impossible faith thesis, since you kind of opened the door to that. And that, what do you mean by impossible faith? What makes Christianity an impossible faith? The summary of of it was that because of the many parts of Christian belief that were so offensive, uh, that were so problematic, uh, that would cause people to not want to believe it, um, there is simply no way, I, I argue, that anyone outside of the very small group of people who were following Jesus on earth would ever come to believe that he was resurrected from the dead. We can certainly accept that there would be some small group that was associated with Jesus originally that would want to believe that he was resurrected, that would want to believe that he had risen from the dead because they had that investment in believing it. 
But when you come to someone who is outside that belief system, who is outside that core group that had an investment in believing, you come to the guy in Rome who has never heard of Jesus before, and here shows up this guy named Paul or Peter and starts telling him he needs to believe. You simply can't come up with a way that, or a motive for him to believe what Peter and Paul are telling him, unless there is some good evidence that the motivating force or act behind Christianity, that is the resurrection, had sufficient evidence that it occurred. Could we maybe make some parallel to, let's suppose, even today, someone growing up in an area, like you and I live in the South, we have a Bible Belt here, and many people here grow up believing in Christianity, they're taught that and such. Then they go, go off to college, and all of a sudden, what they were told, such as giving your personal testimony and such, no longer works. It, could that be any parallel? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, what you see there is, you know, when people are insulated, and I've used the word insulated, but it's not exclusive to the South, certainly. It's exclusive to anywhere. It's anywhere you go. When people are not exposed to new ideas, uh, when they are raised to believe a certain way, and this is this is a point that atheists make as well, so they can hardly deny it. There is a tendency for them to stay comfortable and want to continue to believe what they already believe. Uh, it takes someone who is a it takes some kind of radical change to overturn what they believe. For many people, being sent off to college, uh, being exposed to those new ideas, is the is the uh, leverage that makes them change their belief system. And they, and this is something our opponents can't deny. They would say, oh, well, they are presented with evidence of these new beliefs, and it is convincing. <laughs> Even though they have been taught from the very beginning that, you know, so that's kind of an, yeah, actually, that's a very good analogy, and it's very ironic in a way, because it's, it's, it sets up, it sets up to just to verify what I've been saying, that uh, people don't believe what's very strongly contrary to what they've originally been taught, unless there is a good reason. Yeah, but JP, are you sure it really works? I mean, look, Christianity was offering forgiveness of sins, eternal life, bodily resurrection. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> the people who lived in that era, shall we go over those things one at a time? <laughs> Okay. All right. So what was the first one on that list? Uh, was it forgiveness? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, we've heard today this. You, you're not going to feel like you need forgiveness unless you're convinced there's a need to be forgiven. And you know, the gods of that era, uh, you know, they were sinners themselves, uh, let's face it. I mean, what, we've heard all of the dirty adventures of Zeus, haven't we? I mean, turning into, you know, turning into an animal and you know, having his way with various women, and uh, you know, the other gods weren't a whole lot better off. Uh, yeah, there the gods back then could kind of be compared to superheroes today. That's that would be for Goku, you know, something like that, throwing their Kamehameha waves all over. But uh, in any event, you know. The, yeah, although people certainly believed there was, you know, there were certain moral issue, issues, uh, that there were certain morals that had to be, you know, adhered to. Um, you know, there, I did ne never saw any evidence that they had any thought that you had to be forgiven of sin by the deities. Uh, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the deities could watch out for people behaving morally, at least according to their moral standard. And certainly you might end up punished by one of them. But I never saw any evidence of the sort found in Judaism that there was this wholesale idea that, you know, you were in need of forgiveness. 
Um, and certainly, if there if there was, um, all you had to do was something like to, you know, even in like Judaism, is take a goat out there and take or take a cow out there, or take a chicken out there, and there you go. You know, uh, your God is happy. Uh, so. It, I, I think this idea that forgiveness of sins was something that was advertised and was you know, considered attractive, I think that's sort of transplanting modern ideas that have been drummed into our heads by evangelists by Billy, like Billy Graham for so long and transplanting them into the first century. I don't see, I don't see any reason to think that that was around at all at the time. Yeah, and not to downplay Barry Graham, of course. I mean, that kind of message could work just fine today, but it didn't back then. Exactly, exactly. It it did, you know, it wouldn't have had any effect on people at the time. Well, how about eternal life? I mean, who wouldn't want to survive the grave and live forever? Well, yeah, I didn't find a whole lot of evidence that there was a problem with that either. I mean, they they had this... um, you know, they had views of afterlife, of course, you know, and some of them were pleasant, some of them were not so pleasant. But we don't see any indication that um, that they were particularly in pursuit of, of that. Um, and I'm trying to remember this. There was a specific author who discussed this. We didn't find tombstones with you know with sentiments about you know how wonderful it would be in the afterlife, and it didn't seem just didn't seem to be a concern. Um, beyond that. We have to realize that the vision that they were preaching of the afterlife wasn't sitting on your cloud with your harp and, and just enjoying yourself all the time. When Jesus talks about the afterlife, he talks about going to work. And, and he specifically talks about going to work for Yahweh uh, and, and being given cities and work to do. And you know, you're not going to be sitting around doing nothing. Um and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, great, eternal life, more work. That's just what we were looking for. Uh, <laughs> and then on that, you have the very specific idea of the resurrection body. Now, was that one? That, was that something you, you – I think you had that on your list. It was. All right, let's talk about the resurrection body in particular. Uh, so there was a quotation. I'm going to see if I can find it real quick. Um yeah, by Feme Perkins, who wrote a book on resurrection, and this is what she said. Christianity's pagan critics generally viewed resurrection as misunderstood metempsychosis at best. At worst, it's ridiculous. This whole idea of getting a body back, getting your body back, uh, was something that was overwhelmingly rejective, uh, rejected. Uh, another quote that she has, the soul may have everlasting life. Corpses ought to be thrown away as worse than dung. Uh, Plutarch, uh, one of Mike Lacona's favorite people lately, says, it was against nature to send bodies to heaven. So now, does this sound like some people who want their body back, who who are going to be happy about that? Now, keeping in mind as well, they believed that spirit was a form of matter, and so you already had a body of some sort. Mm-hmm. So you didn't need another one. I mean, you would have whatever you needed. But you, know, you just they, they had no no uh, favor outside of the you know, outside the Jewish uh, converts they may have gained for this principle for this principle of a red red body. And, and let's keep in mind, Gnosticism was really popular early on because it denied. The reality of the body, as it were, it said that matter was evil, and the goal was to escape 
the bodies. And there were many people who said the same way. I mean, when Socrates is dying, he asked for a cock to be given to a god of healing for his final healing. And I'm pretty sure Corson and Reed in their book in Search of Cards said that to, his, to return to the body would be like returning to prison again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was viewed as limiting. I mean, certainly the Jews, you know, had their own belief that it was a far more positive experience. But when you're talking about converting Gentiles, uh, this is this is not an attractive thing to sell with the resurrection of the body. Uh, Maybe maybe a good analogy would be it's like trying to sell one of those old uh, Ford Falcons that's, uh, you know, like 500 feet long and weighs 10,000 pounds. I mean, Try and sell that to someone who drives a Prius. You know, it, it's kind of odd because so many people are saying, well, Paul, he taught a spiritual resurrection, which we disagree. If the, as the Gospels went out and they were trying to reach Gentiles, they turned it into a bodily resurrection to make it more popular. And for you and I, no, no, if they want to do, if they want to make it more popular, they would do the exact opposite. Precisely. And, you know, you're talking about Gnosticism. Well, I mean, Gnosticism... The Christianized Gnosticism arose, why? Because there was a problem, namely they're teaching this resurrected physical body, and Gnosticism is the solution. Oh, don't worry about that. You don't need that after all. <laughs> okay, um, here's a question, someone who came in. JPH, do you have any info you can give me on the Dosophians? They are a Samaritan group that skeptics occasionally point to as an example of a messianic movement that didn't die out with the faith of their leader continued on in a way that they support the cognitive dissonance theory for the rise of Christianity. How does that sound? I've never heard of this group, at least not by the way you said it. D-O-S-I-T-H-E-A-N-S. I've never heard of that group. I'll have to look that up. Okay. I mean, I certainly... Uh, let, let, let's talk about that kind of thing some here. I mean, I think in order to give some background on this question, we need to talk some about honor and shame. Yes. Something people yes. don't understand. When, If you're trying to explain honor and shame to a modern American today, which in some ways you kind of are right now, how would you explain it? Uh, in a very simple way. It, it's very difficult to do in a very simple way. But here's the best way, I think, to put it. <laughs> honor uh, refers to the view of how other people see you, how other people esteem you. Yeah, the, in the modern America, you're you're mainly concerned about how you feel about yourself. Although, you know, we know about things like peer pressure. You know, you're encouraged to ignore that and just look to yourself and gauge for yourself what you're really worth. That was not their perception. You know, the whole idea with honor is it's dependent on how others react to you. It also involves the degree of positive assessment inherent in their reactions to you. And so if their view of you is positive, they have honor. Now, shame is a little different. Um, it's not exactly a lack of honor. Um, it's, it's more like um, it's, it's, it's related to the negative view people have of you. It's not necessarily directly related to lacking honor. Uh, but the bottom line with shame is that you know, you're doing things that other people do not approve of. Yeah, I think the closest parallel we could have today actually is people on Facebook. Everyone wants to be liked for their post and such. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not a Facebook person, but you know that's that's that would be a good modern example. It, it does amaze me how often people reject the idea of you know to say, well, peer pressure you know is not a, doesn't it's not effective on me. But you know that's the first thing people are worried about when they get on Facebook is how many likes do I have. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, it's, that's a good that's a good analogy for you. I mean, it's a very simple analogy. It really doesn't cover how this affected people's lives in general in their social world of the Bible. But, but yeah, it, it's of the same principle. And one of my my main chapter uh, in when I wrote about this was about crucifixion as a death that was dishonorable, that was shameful. Um, if you look up the way people thought of crucifixion at that time, it was a death that was reserved for the people who were the most hated, most despised, the most shamed, and the least attractive to others. And that you can, if you think about the way it worked, I mean, you were putting a body on display uh, with no clothes, uh, with injuries, uh, and you know, and people were just walking by you, making fun of you. Uh, yeah, we're we're focused today on how painful that death must have been, but their thought was: here I am up on the cross, being embarrassed, and people think so badly of me, and that would have been a far worse fate for someone like that than the pain would have been. Yeah, but JB, you know, someone could say, yeah, but after that, you're dead, so it's over. It doesn't matter. Well, it's, that's fine if you're if you're dead. But now imagine trying to go around preaching someone like that as the Messiah, as holding a position of the highest honor, mm-hmm. uh, as being worthy of the highest honor. Yeah. In my view, the only way that could possibly have worked out is if God himself was perceived as having overturned the, the, uh, the judgment of shame that the crucifixion represented. And by doing of that was accomplished by the resurrection, by reversing the death that Jesus was subjected to. JP, I've had someone ask this, since we're talking about the impossible faith, Jesus, you have here, yes. how long did you do research for this, or was it something you kind of stumbled on while doing research on something else? I, th- I started doing the research that eventually became part of it in as early as 1998, the thesis itself has something like 10 to 15 separate points. And I, I would guess that at some some date, like in the mid-2000s, I mean 2005 or 2006, I started putting together some of these you know, separate ideas that were separate points at the time and thinking, you know, this, this could be a systematic kind of argument. And I started looking into them, looking into them more closely. And I thought, well, yeah, I could make something systematic out of this. And that's eventually what I did. And JP, doesn't Josephus say also somewhere that sometimes if people thought someone had been wrongly crucified, they wouldn't feel shame for them, they feel sympathy for them. Right. And what we're talking about there would be the um, small inside group, which would be equivalent to the apostles and a small circle of disciples of Jesus. I, I do allow for those, that small group to be convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because they have that investment. And so likewise, the people Josephus refers to had an investment in their movement. But this does nothing to explain how people outside that movement could possibly be convinced to join it. 
Yeah, but when it's someone like uh, Richard Carrier, and to explain to my audience, I mean the uh, unemployed, probably and most prominent internet blogger Richard Carrier, who's banned from Skepticon, wouldn't uh, <laughs> someone like that say, yeah, but, you know, this story would have been appealing to people because it's about a, bat, about a guy who faces worse opposition and he comes back from it and succeeds. This would be an, an appealing story. Yeah, it would be an appealing story if it was true. And that's precisely you – know, I don't – Carrier never really gets past that either any more than Ehrman does. His only answer seems to be, well, they believed it, therefore it. But you're, you're missing that huge step in between. You can't jump from one end of the Grand Canyon to the other just by saying he went up in the air and came down. That's <laughs> that's not explaining it. That's that's just – that's describing it. Uh, and I, you know, I've challenged people to give me a similar situation in modern times where you – know, Show me where David Koresh is winning converts today. <laughs> it's, you know, show me where, show me where, someone like uh, John Wesey is being recognized as a hero. <laughs> where is this? Where is the reversal of the same type in modern times? Uh, well, uh, well, the Mormon Church is pretty popular. Mormon Church. Well, you know, I was anticipating that objection, and kind of ironically, at about the same time I was starting to put this together, I was also into Mormonism. And, uh, of course, I wrote the book Mormon Defenders as my first original book. This was before they had e-books, folks. You know, they had, they had these things called pages and covers. I, I'm sure some of you have heard of them. Uh, and so since I had already learned a good deal about Mormonism, I decided to take the, you know, 10 to 15 factors from the impossible faith and say, hey, let's try and apply these to Mormonism, see what works out. Well, your immediate problem is that Joseph Smith was you know, lived in America in the mid-1800s when the rugged individual was just starting to become a popular concept. And so, you know, you didn't have the whole thing about honor. It was There was still some sense of honor even among the founding fathers of America, and you can see them even talking about it. But there, by that, by the time of Joseph Smith, they were able to say things like, "Well, what business is this of this is yours? What we're doing with polygamy? I mean, you mind your own business." You know, and and then at the same time, Mormonism had a one big help. As soon as they got in big trouble, they skedaddled out to Utah, and they had to skedaddle out several places. They had to go to Missouri. They had to end up going to Utah. And so they were able to sort of ensconce themselves in this little laboratory, so to speak, where they could develop and live at peace and grow and become a major force, which we don't have a parallel for with Christianity. There, that doesn't work. Beyond that, other things, you know, resurrection. Okay, we've talked about resurrection being so offensive. Mormonism taught resurrection, and they taught it in a time when Christianity was the dominant. So they had no problem teaching things like resurrection. Now they had a few unique doctrines, notably polygamy. But but what happened to that doctrine? Have you heard of uh, uh, it's it's it makes for some nice TV now and then, but uh, but the um, on the whole, the Mormons are not practicing that right now, are they? At least not on the public. I suspect it's still going on in Utah where it's safe. Sure. sure. Not on public here. Sure. I mean, you, when the Mormon knocks at your door, uh, what, is the first thing they tell you about is, hey, you can join up and become a polygamist. <laughs> yeah. Nor do they go and tell you immediately, hey, 
hey, here's the doctrine of eternal progression for you. No, no, that uh, eternal progression has less of you know has less of an unattractive aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But, but polygamy is certainly the most attractive, unattractive doctrine that they teach, and it got them in huge trouble early on in their history. And they actually did abandon it because, at least publicly, <laughs> precisely because it caused too many problems for them. It caused persecution. So, so the parallel would be if Christianity gave up the resurrection doctrine because of persecution. And yet groups did, the Gnostics. <laughs> but obviously that didn't happen for the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something important to state that it was Christianity as it originally was preached that survived, not a Christian that went through a bunch of different evolutions and then, lo and behold, conquered. That is true. That is true. And, you know, it is fair to point out that many of the variations like Gnosticism, they were not reliant on some historic claim. They were not reliant on the historic Jesus rising from the dead. They were not reliant on any specific event happening. Much of their system was related to like revelations that came from came to the people, and that's not something that you're going to have any ability to test. <laughs> I like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Worlds podcast. We're only going an hour and a half today due to time constraints and such. I've got JP Holding as my guest. We're talking about his uh, work, The Impossible Faith, contrast to Bart Ehrman's The Triumph of Christianity. But if you're here next week, we're going to be. Uh, talking with Matt DeLockery about his work on Colossians and the person of Jesus in Colossians. So if you're here interested in that, come back next week for that. Mm-hmm. All right. And JP, we've had another question from here because you were just talking about how they would have been grossed out by the resurrection, but when Paul speaks on Mars here, it says, some were intrigued. Why? <laughs> Oh, I would say it's kind of like the same thing. People might be intrigued because they see a bad accident along the road. Uh, and I have a – let me see if I can find a note here on that. Um, uh, there, you know, there, was, there were some people who, who told, you know, just because it was a strange idea, they would want to hear about it. But that also is not the equivalent of believing. Uh, you know, simply because you know, I think Luke follows up by saying this group of people always wanted to hear about the latest new ideas, and you know, it was just it's probably just simply, uh, something like a point of pride for them to be knowledgeable about all these strange ideas that were going around. Mm-hmm. But you don't see anyone coming to believe specifically from that group. Uh, it's, and it, I, I think I believe the, the tone of some of that was somewhat dismissive as well. Uh, you know, we want to hear more about this later. Like, you know, don't call us; we'll call you. Though, I mean, you certainly don't see anyone coming for Paul to speak further on the subject. Yeah, uh, I think something else we should talk about is the barrier of Jesus, because a lot of people say, "Well, Paul doesn't talk much." About that, they even question there was a barrier. Bart Ehrman is one who questions there was a barrier. And one of your main arguments saying, yes, there was a barrier, is the barrier Jesus had was shameful. Yeah, the, yeah, the barrier? Barrier. Burial. Burial. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear that. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, this is a theory that was um, significantly promoted by Byron McCain. And I'm going to call up that. Um he wrote an article called Where No One Had Yet Been Laid, The Shame of Jesus' Burial. And the premise he had was that 
Jesus, you know, although I believe there was a certain amount of effort put into trying to erase the shame of it, ultimately the burial was not an honorable burial. Uh, in fact, it was a dishonorable burial because he was buried in the tomb of a stranger. Now, yes, it was a nice tomb, but you're not, you were supposed to be buried in a tomb that belonged to your family. You were supposed to be with your group. Uh, it was a, a great honor to, with, your, with your ancestors. But being buried in a stranger's tomb, uh, that was not honorable. Uh, and part of McCain's thesis, and I don't agree with it 100%, but <clears throat> part of his thesis is that Jesus was buried in that tomb, and Joseph perhaps took advantage of that, in my view, uh, to do what he could. Jesus was buried in that tomb and allowed to be buried there precisely to shame and also to prevent any mourning of him, which was also shameful. If you were not mourned, that was bad. Part of the, part of the honor of the dead was to mourn them. And that, and so incidentally, uh, is one of the reason why Cain would, would say, I'm sure, that the guard was placed at the tomb. Uh, the whole point of that, oh, sure, they, they would prevent a theft, which Matthew took advantage of as a point. But the main reason there was a guard at the tomb was to prevent people from mourning Jesus. They would drive them away. Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard some people say, well, if that's the case, then why are the women coming to the tomb Sunday morning to, to annoy him with spices and such? And I want to say, excuse me, but have you known women grieving over someone they love to be completely rational at that point? Well, certainly, I've known some men too, frankly. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but you know, the women may have hoped that they would be able to get, you know, they would be able to convince someone to let them through. Because women were given a little more leeway sometimes. That much is true. Uh, and certainly, you know, even if even if they were forbidden once they got there, it would have been honorable to make the effort. Now, that's also a something about the crucified savior thing. I mean. Carrier again would say, well, several other people were crucified. He mentions Tamaz, for instance, was crucified, and it turns out just fine. I don't, you know, that's that relates to a whole different topic. Uh, well, that I looked into quite a while ago, of course, with the book Shattering the Christ Myth, and I never found any of those people were actually crucified. Um, the only one that he got close on, I think, was a figure named Anana. Yes, that's and the one. That's, that's the one. Oh, okay. That's one he had. Okay. Well, she was killed by judges in the underworld by being stared at, and then her was hung on a stake. And that was a humiliating treatment of the body. It was akin to crucifixion. I would say it's like a cousin of crucifixion. But hold on a second, Richard. Uh, Anana was brought back to life later, which means she was vindicated. And so, actually, you're supporting my argument because, by the same token, Jesus would have had to have been brought back and vindicated to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would say, though, but isn't this just cognitive dissonance that was taking place? <laughs> cognitive dissonance. Well, now, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but thankfully, I had someone who was a psychologist who wrote a chapter for me for The Impossible Faith. 
uh, his, let's forget his name here and make sure I get it right. Because, Michael Reagan? Uh, Michael Reagan. <laughs> yeah, Reagan Brown. Reagan Brown. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's I'll it. Name that one. Uh, there's too many Reagans out there. It's got to get rid of some of those. Yeah, he wrote me a chapter called Inapplicability of Cognitive Dissonance as an Explanation for the Post-Crucifixion Behavior of the Disciples. And what that mouthful amounts to uh, is that no, cognitive dissonance is not a good explanation. And I won't dare to try and summarize the chapter in just a few moments. Uh, but I encourage people to read that because it is very interesting to read that. And it will be very useful because it seems like the, the explanation of cognitive dissonance is just waved around by a lot of critics who have no idea what it actually is. I'd encourage people to also read Leon Festinger's When Prophecy Fares, the original study on yes. this. And one of the main points to point out is when cognitive dissonance takes place, it normally does not reach anywhere largely beyond the original group. It kind of dies out very quickly, and Christianity did not do that. There you go. And that's, again, with what I was saying earlier about uh, new conversions being limited to the small group that was originally adhering to Jesus. Now, how would that work? To, I think his name was Sabbatai Sabai, the Jewish figure who was thought to be the Messiah, and yet converted to Islam. In his case, I did. I, you know, that was one of the uh, parallel figures that I had thought of using. But when I looked at that uh, movement more closely, I didn't think it worked out because his conversion to Islam actually sort of aborted the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the people who ended up, you know, still having some kind of following to him, uh, he it started a new group that was sort of half Jewish, half Islam. Uh, there's not too many of those people around. It's a very stagnant group. Um, if you want to see what Christianity ought to have looked like if it was a false faith, that would actually be a good example. You have a very small group that remains a small group that passes down a few things you know, over time. But you, you know, they don't make any waves anymore. Uh, they're, they're, they're not growing at all. Um, if that, for that, to that extent, it's a good lesson in why Jesus had to be resurrected for Christianity to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another point that I don't think we've brought up yet is that Christianity was viewed with suspicion because it was new. Yes, yeah. Um, the, 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 the world of the New Testament was very suspicious of anything new. Uh, everything old was considered better, uh, you know, the antiquity of a, of a group or belief or system was considered a point in its favor. And one of the points I've made, too, in there, is that the only reason the Jews gained any respect at all was, be, was because their movement could be traced to antiquity. Now, you can tell that the people like Tacitus who didn't care for the Jews were not too happy about that. I mean, it's something they couldn't deny. They, they knew that the Jews were... A, of ancient uh, heritage. And for that reason, they were able to gain some respect as a movement. Um, the Jews were able to you know, get some con- reconciliation with those that were opposed to their beliefs. But as a whole, a quote I have here, the primary test of truth in religious matters was custom and tradition, the practices of the ancients. And in contrast, the Christians were regarded as arrogant innovators. And 
there was a there was a phrase that was used to summarize this: always, mm-hmm. everywhere, by everyone. Yeah. Whereas Christianity was saying, not important. now, not here, and not no, you. Uh, Justin Martyr, I believe, also wrote so, uh, yeah, uh, Especially when they, when, they, when, they, when they separated themselves from any Jewish the, groups that they the had, um, uh, or were perceived as doing such. Like that was a strike was kind against. Of similar to paganism in some of its beliefs. But they were doing the exact opposite many times. Yes, they were. Yeah, they were trying to prove that there were similarities, that there was a, a sort of. Uh, feature of antiquity within Christian belief. And um, I, I, you know, when I read the Justin trying to do that, I'm thinking, buddy, you're, you're just asking for trouble because uh, that you don't really want to do that. Uh, you, you do want and you want Christianity to stand out. Uh, you don't you, you want to you know, point to the things where it is different than what was happening before. Um, and as I recall, I don't think that approach won too many converts. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk some also about the idea of the persecution of a church because of this. And Candida Moss, a few years ago, wrote her book, The Myth of Persecution. Uh, she was missing a lot of persecution, wasn't she? She was missing a lot of persecution, I think. Yeah. And let me look that. Let me get what I'm saying about that. Um yeah, I think she was mainly looking at persecution in terms of death, uh, which is which is probably not the bulk of ex- you know, persecution we would necessarily expect to be experienced by Christians. The bulk of the persecution we would expect would be relatively painless in terms of physical pain, but it would be more of a social kind of thing. Uh, it would be like people wanting to avoid you, people not wanting to talk to you. Um, um, and I was I, I said even long before she wrote her book that this whole idea that you know the the church was endlessly persecuted needed some fine tuning. This was not a good argument to use as it was at that time being presented. Uh, but Robin Lane Fox had put it this way: he said, "By reducing the history of Christian persecution to a history of legal hearings, we miss a large part of the victimization." Uh, what we had to look at was insult, reproach, physical abuse, you know, your property being confiscated. But in an honor and shame society, you were looking at people denying you honor and shaming you uh, publicly. I think we could make a parallel today when we talk about the cults. That if you're leaving Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses and such, you are ostracized by the community. Yes. Yeah. And I've known a couple of people who have been through that. Um, I've never personally experienced anything like that. I don't know if you have. uh, Well, let's 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 put it this way. I mean, let's let's talk about since I have a, a brother with it as well, Asperger's. I mean, there are people who might exclude someone like you for that. And that's certainly not fair. That's certainly wrong. Uh, but by the same token, you can imagine, you know, being ostracized for for being that way. And it's just the same principle, you know, it, with Christianity. Only it's a, for a belief instead of because of something physically about you. Uh, um, people, do, do, if you can imagine, but because you believe something, people don't want you around them. They don't want you around their children. They, they don't want to do business with you. Uh, this this is the kind of thing that most of the Christians would have faced far more often than they would have faced uh, persecution in the form of being killed. 
and that's where Moss went wrong. Um, she mostly equates persecution with death, and so she commits the mistake Fox alluded to, which is missing a lot of the persecution because she defines it so narrowly. And I'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And if you want to support us and help us out, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there you can find a link, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, where you click that link and you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you go there and you make your donation. And when... You do when you get in touch with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. We will we'll get that donation from them, and it will be tax deductible our entirety. You can also buy some e-books that I've written, such as One of Creed of Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or ones I've co-written, such as God and Natural Disasters, or ones that I've co-written with JP here, um, Christian Answers to Risk Generation's Questions, Godless, and Defining Inerrancy, which there will be a special announcement about that one towards the end of the show, so be waiting and listening for that. And guys, um, Mother's Day is coming up, okay? And if you have any ladies in your life, chances are you know that a lot of them really like jewelry. And chances are your mother does too. Why not go to our jewelry store and purchase something that can be used to, as a gift for your mother? And when you do, 25% of what you purchase goes to deeper waters. And if you're not buying for your mother, you can buy it for your wife, that special lady in your life. You know what I always say? You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or... <laughs> You can buy something special for that lady in life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> and uh, please also go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love seeing them. And be watching also because in a couple of weeks, we're not going to have a show on the 19th because I'm going to be in Greensboro, Rally and I together, and I will be a speaker at the Mention of Ours podcast uh, small group of us that are un unknown to most of your projects or but have a big voice still. We'll be talking to you all there, and I'll try and record anything that I say and in a talk, that is, and bring it here and play it on the show where you are. Now, let's uh, we don't have as much time left here, so let's talk about some announcements. I did say something about defining inerrancy and such. What do you want to say about defining inerrancy? Yeah, well, that was a book you and I put together some time ago. Is uh, inspired by uh, you know, all the stuff Mike Lacona went through earlier, having to do with his interpretation of the raising of the saints in Matthew. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's been a concern of both of us for a long time that people need to define inerrancy in a proper way and not use modern ideas to understand the term and to interpret the Bible. Um, so to that end, uh, you and I are going to start working on a project now with, with, some, with, you know, with Mike's encouragement and help in some ways. 
that um, it is going to be about contextualizing inerrancy. And what is that's going to be is we're defining inerrancy was the explanation for what to do. I think uh, this new project will be sort of the practical application of how to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, right now I'm putting together some uh, some sample chapters uh, for like to experiment with how this process would actually work. And then you and I are each going to have some chapters we're going to do. And uh, I think most likely, well, certainly your chapter will be related to uh, what Mike is doing right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to select a few others. But with any luck, we will get this out there sometime in the fall, I'd say. chapters on John Barton as well since I'm a big right. fan of his and he's a good friend of the show. Absolutely. Absolutely so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple others that we're, we're going to work out all the candidates but you know, uh, you know Mike's been a big help uh, encouraging us with this project for a long mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to be seeing that come to fruition pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And for everyone else hearing about this I mean, we got a live audience here right now some and since you're here about this, I mean, we're getting ready to do this work here. If there's anything you'd like to see addressed more in this or work on contextualizing inerrancy and applying it or questions we have today, then the thing to do is to email you or I those questions, isn't it? Yeah, either one of us can answer questions right now. Uh, there you go. Some. Uh, so we don't have a whole lot of answers right now. You know, I was in fact I was talking to exchanging uh, an email with Gary Happerman the other day. He's like, well, "What do you plan to do?" And I'm like, "We're still figuring that out. We just want you, you know, we're just putting you on alert for right now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have all the details yet, but uh, as I put together a couple of sample chapters and just think about exactly how the process will work, uh, we can release a few more details. Maybe and release a sample or two at some point. Mm-hmm. And is there a place that people can go if they want to be updated on how the project is going? Um, I think I will go ahead and you know, start putting some some uh, updates. Maybe uh, you can maybe if, if we can jointly write something and put it on deeper waters or on uh, one of my blogs. Either one would be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can work. Let's yeah, let's work that out so we can give some regular updates if possible. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be good. Mm-hmm. Now, what other projects are you engaged in at the time, JP? The, uh, the other major project I have going right now in terms of books is updating Shattering the Christ Myth, mm-hmm. uh, the book where I uh, you know, defend the proposition that Jesus existed as a human being. You know, never mind all this stuff about was he resurrected. You know, there's enough people out there who think he didn't even exist. And so I'm currently working on a revised version of the addressing the claims that Jesus was, was the inspiration for his story was pagan deities like Mithra. And among the new elements we'll be adding is something you did a lot of work on, mm-hmm. which is this reference to a list of 500 dead gods, yeah. uh, including a very popular Charito Wins. <laughs> yeah, 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 Matthew yeah. McCormick's pride there. Yeah. yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, I'll go ahead and explain this. Matthew McCormick wrote, wrote The Case Against Christianity. He had a list of 500 de- dead gods, all of them thought to be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, etc., etc. 
well, the huge overwhelming majority of them were not. And one he had listed was Jar Edo Wins. And I'm going through and I'm looking at each and every single one of these gods. And it turns out Jar Edo Wins was a big internet hoax that lasted for about nine years or so, made by a guy named Jared Owens. And he just changed his own name. And people fell for it, including Matthew McCormick. So the moral of the story is don't just post lists of something without looking into them. Mm-hmm. Now, is this new book also going to be replying any to Richard Carrier? And, of course, by Richard Carrier, I mean the unemployed polyamorous prominent internet blogger who's banned from Skepticon, Richard Carrier. Yeah, and who is also currently uh, losing a defamation lawsuit from most of things. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular book uh, is concerned with the pagan copy thesis. Mm-hmm. He didn't actually promote that too much. Uh, so no, but future updates, uh, and I'm releasing this in like a series of four, uh, it looks like. And probably you know, the third or fourth volumes will have some material related to his claims on that subject. Mm-hmm. Now, what about your YouTube channel at Tekton TV? What's going on there? Well, right now we're in the midst of a series, actually. It's a it's kind of ironic. Uh, I'm just starting to make videos coming uh, next week mm-hmm. that relate the impossible faith thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, I was addressing some of the more obscure claims, things like the idea that the Zoroastrians were the source for ideas about resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also addressed an idea by a fellow named uh, Robert Greg Cabin uh, that we can't prove that Jesus was resurrected because no one uh, dropped an atom bomb on him. So, yeah. <laughs> So that, but I'm starting uh, as part of the series that has to deal with the impossible faith thesis on uh, some probably late next week will be the first one I'll put out. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, say something about the impossible faith thesis. I, mean, I often tell Christians, please don't use the argument that you know our this I'll start believing in resurrection as soon as you can show me the bones of Jesus, because really, if Jesus didn't rise. Not only would his bones probably disintegrate, we'd probably have no real way to identify them. I think a better explanation was, can you give me a lot, an explanation that explains the rise of the early church better than the one that the apostles themselves gave? That's a good way to put it, and you're, you're, you're probably going to just uh, get a lot of silence, or you're going to get a lot of uh, babbling that has nothing to do with realities of first century life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two, uh, the assumption generally is people back then were just like they are now, and so and that's probably why Herman figured you know, he could get away with it, just saying, oh, they just believed, because yeah. today if they think, you just have con- convictions, if you just have strong beliefs, you can convince anybody of anything. Uh, I challenge people to try that uh, in a real-world situation, though, where there's a big price for believing something or where there's a big problem with believing something. Uh, and I, I haven't had any successful people, uh, successful counters to that. And JP, we've had a question come in here, and I know the answer to this one, but you might be amused saying it. Who draws the cartoons for Tekton TV? I do. Yeah, um, I... I began cartoon, drawing cartoons years ago, and although I, I haven't been able to be, do them as well as I used to because of uh, sort, sort of an injury to my to my hands, um, you know, I, I still enjoy doing it now. And the animation is very basic. I mean, you're talking about stuff like 
was like Speed Racer back in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of my, I have a reader who is a, a consultant for that kind of thing. He gives me good advice. Uh, it's it's very basic stuff, but you know, it, it's good for it's a good and unique way to get things across to people, which is really what Tecton TV is all about. It's showing that we can get complex ideas about Christianity boiled down to a simpler format that anyone can enjoy and understand. Yeah, I like to let people know that we've recently had a friend of Deeper Waters donate some video software for us, but Sony Vegas 15, I believe it was, to us. So we're going to hopefully start making videos soon ourselves as well, in addition to the podcast being uploaded and such. Show. Now, JP, we are getting near our show. If someone does have some questions about what they've heard from you on the show, do you have a blog, a website, an email, where they can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yeah, the best way these days to contact me is direct to my email address, which is jphold at att.net. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's the main email I use for any ministry work and business. That's the email I've used to answer questions for mm -hmm. several years now. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I actually do answer emails. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a guy named Nick Peters who can attest to that. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote me something like, what was it, 18, what's it 15 years ago? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I sure regret answering that email now. <laughs> you know, like we've, we've come a long way, and so much has changed that as you and I are talking here, our wives are talking on the phone. That's right, that's right. Our ladies are having a good time talking to each other while we're busy talking to each other. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was hoping that that happened in my life someday. Yes. Yes, it certainly did. Mm -hmm. In ways you never expected. Yep. Now, do you have any final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, no, it's just been a pleasure to be on here. Uh, again, you know, I think this is the third time. And, yep. You know, uh, you've done really well with this. It's been great that you've had some, so many good guests. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about, you know, You've had some amazing names on there, and mm -hmm. you keep up the good work. Thank you, and uh, I like to remind everyone, and I do hope that we will see you back here again sometime, no doubt, and uh, to contextualizing it now, as he comes out, we'll have a good discussion on it together. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have uh, Matt DeLoppery on, talking about Colossians and Christology. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.